Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. This is the second episode in a two-part series with Jim Rickert, manager of the Prather Ranch in Northern California. Go to artofrange.com to find the first episode. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that this large-scale industrial meat packing is a pretty tiny blip on the time scale of human history. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it makes me wonder whether that will continue. We see in some other areas like reintegrating livestock back into cropping systems just because the cost of synthetic fertilizer is high and we need to add organic matter into cropping systems. Some of those things are beginning to change, largely driven by economics, uh, if not by ideology. If you had a crystal ball, any idea what you see in the future for, uh, for beef slaughter? Well, I'd like to hope that there's a room for these small-scale systems like we've tried to create here. Uh, but, you know, we, you know, we, Walt, this goes back to Walt Rouse. He believed, and, and I subscribe to it, Mary and I both subscribe to it, is that in paying people living wages. And so we pay pretty darn good pay. And uh, our, our labor costs per unit is at least double what it is in a big plant mm -hmm. per unit of output. We're at least double. Um, and so, it, you know, our, we, we have to capture a, a, a higher price. And that's, I, I, though I'm trying real hard to keep the price at, an, at a level that people in our community can afford to pay, can, can afford that. Uh, because I think we, part of sustainability is making it available to the masses rather than just the wealthy elite. I, I, I feel like we've we've missed something if we if we uh, we we do need to be competitive on prices too, and that's that's a real hard dilemma. I mean, as as uh, commodity prices go up and our input costs and electricity, we've 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 really worked hard too to. Uh, uh, we put in solar fields. I'm in the process of finishing up. Uh, it's in, under construction right now on our hay farm, a 745 kW uh, solar field. And between that and the 286 kW we have here at the slaughter plant and the farm and the headquarters over here, from at least our fee-owned land, we will be we will produce just about as much electricity as we consume. Mm, wow. Um, and so, but, and we have solar hot water bank in the processing plant that, you know, use the sun to create that. And, and, uh, well, I haven't figured out how to, uh, you know, move cattle 200 miles, uh, from our winter pastures that that's the farthest one away from our summer pasture to our winter pasture without putting them in a truck. Uh, I'm pretty sure I five would, uh, uh, not be happy with a cattle herd going down at, uh, at three miles an hour. Uh, like my grandfather did in, in the day. Yeah, that's, that's a long walk. Yeah, going back to the large-scale uh, industrial slaughter capacity, I think this is one of the uh, 
less obvious, less tangible side effects of a pretty consumerist economy and culture that we expect to get more and more for less and less money, both as consumers and as producers. Um, and, you know, the, the United States spends a significantly smaller percentage of an individual family's disposable income on food than nearly anywhere else in the world. And any, any, any time in history as well. Yeah, this, for sure. It, it is, it, I tell people all the time that we have done such a great job of this uh, as farmers that we've allowed the people to be, you know, uh, we freed up so much uh, labor and drudgery that people had to do to, to obtain food that they can be poets and writers and uh, you name it, whatever else, astronauts or whatever else. But uh, those people, you know, his, in history were and, and in most in a lot of other societies were out producing food. And we've become very, very efficient at doing that. Uh, and and people don't appreciate what a bargain food is in the United States. Mm -hmm. For better and for worse. For better and for worse. Now, along with that, you end up with systems that are driven where they drive costs down. And, and you know, I can't understand how, uh, I mean, I read it in some of the meat, meat magazines, you know, meat producer magazines that uh, about some of these costs per unit that, um, for labor, uh, on like on slaughter. And I'm, I'm just flabbergasted. It's like 20 bucks and I'm, over 50. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's with me working side by side. I just, I don't even count my time. Right. And uh, it, but if, but I read also that they have an 80% turnover. They have almost all uh, entry level positions and they teach a person how to do one simple, one thing. They, they make one cut. They do it over and over and over again. And they, that's all they do where our crew, we cross train them and people can do almost anything in the, in the kill floor. Uh, they work back and forth and, and some of them, there's people who are a lot better at one thing than another, but, uh, these are journeymen butchered with, with, you know, skilled craftsmen. And they've been with us for, like I said, 15, 20 years in a lot of cases. Uh, I've got one a uh, young guy that's just started with us and his uh uh his father worked with us and his grandfather worked with us years ago uh so you know we're in the third generation with Bodie and and I've got a uh, we've got a Hispanic family on our farm that uh the fourth generation's working with us they've been with over 30 years so we really try to value the people and and tell them that they're valuable and and give them the, uh, uh, because I'm scattered out, I can't micromanage anybody if I wanted to. So we need to, you know, find good people, give them, pay them well, and ask them to make good decisions. And, and I, you know, I try to more or less give them the direction of what we want to do. And we'll talk about changes and things we're doing, but we don't, I, I don't want to micromanage. They have to make, they, they're responsible for the output and we, like we keep track of the uh, pounds per uh, per man hour, 
that's that gets cut every day. And so we I have them we write it up on a whiteboard so everybody can kind of see how we're tracking and how our productivity is. And mm-hmm. it's not it's it's I, they could report that to me easily, but by computer, I mean, they could just send me a, an email about it, but I want it up on this whiteboard. So everybody, when they come into the lunchroom, they look over there and they go, okay, we're, we're trending upward or we're trending downward. And then we, we actually, you know, about with our TLU report, we evaluate each animal and we try to, uh, um, you know, look at, at the cutouts and, you know, what, what kind of yield we get out of each animal. And so it's a, and we actually do traceability from a, an ID standpoint. The animals are ID'd at birth, and that number tracks through their through to the packages of meat. Yeah, I appreciate what you're doing there. I'm philosophizing here, but I it, again, I think this could be borne out with quantitative analysis of you know, large scale data. But it seems like the cultural push for individual upward mobility in the workforce seems to demand, uh, you know, horizontal geographic mobility. And that destabilizes local communities because you've got families and social groups that are split up, moving all over the place, trying to chase a few more dollars. And uh, it seems that paying people what they're worth, where they're at, in a way that allows them to remain in the same geographic community has a tremendous amount of social value and we see the effects of that uh, dysfunction all around us. Oh, I, I, I commonly would say, and my wife's a county supervisor in the Shasta County, the county just, uh, just uh, south of us. I'm in Siskiyou County uh, today. Um, and, uh, I say that I look at the high school that my children went through and they there were roughly 20 some kids per grade level. So it's small, small schools. Uh, And our export from these valleys and these communities is our best and brightest students, Mm -hmm. our young people. And if I ran a cow herd where I, you know, disposed of the best animals and I kept the culls, uh, over time, that's not going to, that doesn't have a good ending. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's what's happening in our rural communities. And I'm, I'm trying to buck that tide a little bit here by, that's part of what Walt and Mary and I wanted to do was to be, contribute to the community and make these things happen uh, in, in a, in and it's it's a tough go. I mean, to be competitive on all this stuff too. Uh, one of the things that when he passed, when Walt passed away in 2010, he uh, the ranch is a corporation, and he uh, gave a large. He created a, a charitable foundation to to hold and own uh, a, a significant interest in the ranch. Uh, when it would all settled out, Mary and I. Uh, and with it, and he actually left us some shares as well. Uh, but we we're the majority owners. But there's uh, this charitable foundation is a significant owner, and we take revenue from the ranch and actually goes into the foundation, and we use it to support things in our community. And we buy animals at the fair, and we 
you know, bought computers for all the at the local high school here. I think there were eight, only eight kids that graduated. We gave them all a laptop a few years ago. And um, there's, you know, different community things. We, we, we sponsor a, uh, the, the foundation sponsors a cleanup day in the little town of McDowell, which has 600 people. And, and we put, uh, you know, we pay for the dumpsters and, and uh, all, and then uh, give the 4-H clubs uh, a few thousand dollars each. There's a couple of 4-H clubs in the Valley here and, and uh, that's their fundraiser and they can bring all the kids out and they all walk around town and pick up the trash. And my wife, leads the pack of kids around and we pick up all of the debris. And this is a tiny, mm-hmm. impoverished little town. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just kind of part of our, you know, our social contract, I think, with the community. And we think that's, in, we think that's an important part of business. I would agree. Uh, w- one of the things that you do that is probably less replicable, which is why I thought we'd wait till last to talk about it, is you sell pharmaceutical grade bovine materials for use in uh, humans correct from your from your slaughter plant there talk a little bit about that that's pretty unique yeah it was it was an inter- interesting opportunity that it came to me personally uh, I was contacted by uh, the at that time the company was called the collagen corporation and the collagen company uh, was they were making the uh, dermal fillers that, if you remember back a few years ago, they they would they would pump up the actress's lips and fill in wrinkles and all kinds of of facial. Uh, plastic surgeons use this stuff a lot, and uh, it was made from cowhides. And this company was selling these. Uh, were just sourcing cowhides any old place. And they were just bringing them in and, and making it and make it, starting to make this stuff. Well, then they started doing some research and risk assessment. They said, you know, we need to have actually a, a controlled supply and actually have, you know, be able to identify it back to the animals. And we need to we need to really do something here about this. And uh, through a, a friend, uh, they uh, was involved with it. They. Uh, they contacted me and said, uh, we'd like to hire you to f- help us set up a closed herd. Well, we didn't, there wasn't even such a thing as a closed herd by uh, uh, definition at, at, at that time. This was back in the late 80s. And so we, we went to work on it. And, and in fact, I remember being in Palo Alto and, and having a group of uh, FDA people and uh, consultants and veterinarians and everything else. And we wrote on a whiteboard on their closed herd with a question mark. And we started throwing what, uh, what would, what would be in a closed herd, you know, closed genetics and, uh, and how you would do it. And we, we went through the whole, and it turns out that the ISO, uh, US, you know, FDA definition is largely that what we wrote on that board that day, it has a year, you have to manage this herd in a particular way for eight years and you have to do this and do mm-hmm. that. Well, it turned out that the Prathet Ranch herd, uh, who I had been managing now for 15 years or so, um, fit the criteria as close as anything did. And, and we had just, uh, except that we were buying live bulls 
And so uh, uh, we started uh, doing that. Uh, they, we entered into the program, created the SOPs, uh, went through the ISO 9000 protocols. Uh, you know, you have to identify the animals. You have to do the parentage, uh, at least on the maternal side. And uh, we don't do it on the male side uh, completely. There are some data available when we AI, but uh, the the ones that are bred with the cleanup bulls, we don't know those for sure. Um, and away we went. We started supplying hides to the collagen corporation, and along the way, that led to some other other business. And then the uh, uh, after a while, we were we were going to a couple of different little slaughterhouses. Uh, and there was one in Stockton and, uh, that we were going to. And anyway, I finally, I, I called up the, the quality, uh, guy and, and quality assurance guy. And I said, you got to come over here and watch what we're doing. And, and just, I'm, I'm feeling like we go to these extraordinary lengths to have this clean, absolutely pure situation. And then we take it down here and we commingle these animals with everybody else's on the planet in a plant that's 80 years old. And I don't know what we're, what we're, what we're doing here. Uh, I'm feeling like we, and, and these people also slaughter sheep and you're worried about sheep scrapey and we're trying to keep away from sheep, but then we just go back and run them in the same pens the sheep have been in. And the guy came and looked at and they go, man, oh, you, you're right. And so they said, well, we want you to build a slaughterhouse. And I said, wait a minute. I, you know, I, I left a family that owned slaughterhouses and, and I, when I was 20 something years old, I told my father and his brothers that I wasn't, you weren't ever going to catch me with a yellow apron and a hard hat and a scabbard full of knives. I was going to get a college education and get a real job. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, what was I doing yesterday? I had a uh, scabbard full of knives, a yellow apron and a hard hat on. Yeah. And uh, my actually, my later in life, my father would before he passed away would remind me of that every once in a while. That statement I made as a young man, uh, and uh, he thought was quite entertained by the fact that uh, I was back in the slaughterhouse business. And <laughs> uh, you know, you never can't tell what happens in life. You know, so you you got to laugh at yourself sometimes. Uh, so that that led us to building the slaughterhouse on the and and the collagen corporation actually built the plant for us and it was. And, you know, that was in 1990. We opened it in 1995. So, and at that time, it cost over a million dollars. And we didn't, and and when they, and later on, they were acquired by the Botox company. And they, uh, they did, they paid us a pretty handsome uh, severance fee, but they, they shut down the whole collagen corporation. And they did, because the Botox wanted to, uh, wanted to eliminate a competitor. Hmm. And uh, so then we were left with uh, that really took uh, a lot of the uh, uh, pharmaceutical business with it. I mean, the big parts of our revenue was there, but we we still sell uh, products uh, like that are used to, uh, in surgeries for uh, we use they use cow bones in some surgeries for, instead of a steel plate or screw. There's uh, if you've ever had a dental implant. Uh, there's a Bondo kind of thing that's, that basically glues your, uh, your implant into your jaw. And we supply the bones that are little bone chips that are made, that are ground up and put into that material. 
there's also a couple hmm. of R&D companies that uh, uh, use uh, collagen patches and there's in different surgeries. And uh, uh, there's a company that's, at, this is really creative, but they're uh, on the East Coast and they're about ready to launch everything. Uh, they've been in R&D and all, they have to go through these all these trials and everything. Um, but they basically will replicate a bone from you out of a cow bone and they make it about 90% scale and they take undifferentiated T cells from your own body fat or, uh, or your own body and basically add a little secret sauce to them and incubate them somehow. And, and the bone cells in the cow bones trigger your human bone. They coat this, they coat this, uh, uh, scaffold that basically they create out of a cow bone. They, they coat this with these, with your own cells. And then your, those undifferentiated cells actually become bone cells. They mm. somehow get the signal from the, the cow bone and the, and the, whatever the secret sauce is, uh, to become a bone. And they, they coat this underlying scaffold, this matrix of a cow bone, and you make yourself a new human bone. And over mm. time, they say it, it just eventually it becomes your own bone again. It, right. it gradually replaces the, all the whole system. And and but you don't have the rejection issues that you have out of some other products. And it's you just get a, a new bone out of it when you're through. And it's your bone, but it's it in, inside that your bone. It's a there's a cow bone matrix. So it's really when when the all this BSE stuff came along, it's really important to not distribute those kinds of you know something that uh, you really can't. Uh, uh, BSE, you, you re there really no good way to uh, denature that agent by any kind of treatment. So you have to have a really clean source of supply that's that's really well documented. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you know we even have. You know, we keep track of a lot numbers of every vaccine we give them. If they've, they're sick, you, you know, the lot numbers of the uh, products that have been, uh, you know, any, any uh, antibiotic or something like that. So it's it's a it's a really uh, pretty rigorous system that way. Yeah, that's fascinating. And then we have a set, set of uh, standard operating procedures and they, you know, you have to do things a certain way. I mean, when we transport cattle, we have dedicated cattle trucks, um, the trailers, and uh, we'll, we have our own truck tractor, but we also will contract at times with, we have two, two of these. And so we'll, we'll contract with times with somebody who has their own truck tractor, but it has to go in our own dedicated trailer. So we don't uh, co-mingle our cattle with other people's cattle that way. And we do, we spend a lot of time on fencing and having isolation around our ranches as well. And that adds to, adds to the issues too. Yeah. If you've got the time, I'd like to use that as a segue to talk a bit about your forage supply calendar. I think it really would be interesting uh, to talk about uh, where the animals are. You mentioned that they span about 200 miles and cover five different five counties, counties in Northern California. Yes. And yeah. What does all that system look like? Well, when it rains, and that's been a you know, when it rains, it works really, really well. We'll uh, these winter pastures typically, you know, will 
we'll start getting rains. And actually, this year, it looks like we're going to get some rains. We've got a few already, but we're going to be getting rains here at the end of October into November. We usually the green feed starts down there. We will hold the cattle here till roughly uh, uh, the first part of November. And then we start shipping cattle down. Now, in a perfect in a, in a normal year, I've taken some fields on the winter pastures and I've stockpiled a lot of feed in them. I mean, I try to let them get up to be, you know, a foot tall. And, and then we leave that dry grass there. And it really uh, protects the young forage coming up. Those are almost all annual ranges down in the. Uh, uh, in fact, they're all pretty well annual ranges down down in the uh, Sacramento Valley foothills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll go into those fields that have been stockpiled. And I stockpile the feed around uh, real good water and stock water sources and stuff. And we have some fields that are more marginal stock water. Well, I, I when we have a lot of rainfall in the ponds and those fields are, are full and I try to graze those and we have other consideration where we'll also look at, um, you know, we, some places we're real close to, uh, uh, residential areas and we'll graze the fields close to uh, rural residences. So it's pretty short. Sometimes I have a kind of plan there so that we don't end up with a big fuel load for, to carry a fire into our neighbors. Uh, so there's some planning around that. And I have personally have a home down there on one of the ranches, too. And we try to we pretty well graze the, the field right around the house down to dirt pretty well because of fire hazard. And uh, and we save fields in in different locations, like I say, depending on uh, stock, stock water and uh, and and just geography. And, and, you know, we try to keep the ones closer to the roads grazed down. Because if a fire starts that, you know, we don't, we don't want to go into a stockpile forage kind of situation. Um, our summer pastures are almost all irrigated pastures. And so we do have one um, Sacramento Valley pasture that's really useful to us in that it uh, it's an irrigated pasture that's it was actually my grandfather's ranch. And it has. uh a water rights out of a stream that all comes gravity flow and we can, and, it, and it's in the middle of the, uh, of, of a big winter range around it that goes with the ranch. And so we, what we do is we try to move the cattle out in that ranch. We try to save the feed so that we have, uh, we try to save a lot of fall feed there so we can bring cattle into that. We ship out of it. And then during the summertime, I try to not have too many cattle there. And then we can, we can come in the fall and we've got, you know, foot high uh, uh, green grass. And for our fall calving cows, I like to breed on that field if I can, because we can, uh, if we're trying to breed cows around the 1st of December, uh, then, uh, you know, it's hard to get them to breed well, a fall calvers, and we have a spring herd and a fall herd, but we, it's hard to get fall calvers to want to breed in, December in uh, 4,600 foot elevation that's, uh, you know, it's getting down towards 10 degrees. The cows are thinking more about survival than they are thinking about, you know, coming into heat and uh, breeding. So we, we try to bring them down and, and breed them in this more favorable climate. And they, you know, they come down and they go, oh, wow, I've been in this cold country. Now, all of a sudden, it's, it's you know, 70 degrees during the day and 50 during the night. and 
man, I, you know, everything's, everything's really working here for me. And, uh, they'll, they'll breed up a lot better in those environments. So we kind of, we try to nuance that a little as well. Do you have all the cows set to a single calving window? You know, if you're trying to maintain some slaughter ready animals year round. We actually breed for over 60 days. Uh, we don't have it. Uh, and, and that allows us to have, if we're calving twice a year and slaughtering once a week, there is a, a real challenge in, in, in getting the animals. You know, we got to push some and we got to pull some back. Like right now we're switching in between yeah. calf crops and my carcass weights have dropped down in the mid sixes because these are 18 month cattle. But then by the time they're uh, 24 to 26 month old cattle, I'm going to have nine weights carcasses. So if there's an ebb and flow of, and, and these cattle we have now are ones we've pushed to kind of, uh, and get them the best feed and they really tried to push these. But then I've got some that I kind of hold back a little bit and we get a little compensatory gain out of them. Uh, but they're the ones that are going to be later. And then we, of course we, our facility is up here in the, in pretty cold country and our slaughter plant is. So, uh, we had, we need to get the cattle, uh, get some size on the cattle before we go into uh, the winter tier too, because it can be, we, we have a pretty good feedlot designed pretty well for, cold climates, but it is, it still can get in the midwinter, it can get 20 below zero here. And, uh, uh, that's, I mean, we haven't had that kind of weather for a while, but we certainly, I've, the coldest I've been here is 34 below. Are you keeping all the, do you have all the cows in the same herd or do you have multiple groups that are moving around? We have multiple groups and multiple different pastures, but we have two sets of summer pastures, basically one up in Siskiyou County. And, uh, and then the other in eastern Shasta County. And so they're, uh, they're all the way from 4,000 plus foot elevation to the Shasta County herd is down at, uh, about 3,000. And they, so we, you know, and we only have the two cattle trucks. So we, 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 we joke sometimes that we're hauling cattle down and the, uh, last load down in this to the winter pastures, we can load them up and start bringing them back to the summer pastures on a backhaul. You know, it's, it almost seems like continuous trucking and you're pairing up cattle and it's a project. It's not, it's not for the faint of heart, uh, getting that all coordinated. So we're, we're typically, you know, some, some, sometime we can make four loads in a day through the short, the ones that are close distance between winter and summer pastures, but the, the long distance one, uh, you can make just, you know, the one load a day. A little while ago, I talked with Davy Rao and Felix Radcliffe with UC Davis about uh, <clears throat> about trying to observe maximum residual dry matter as a management tool. You know, most of the time in the Pacific Northwest, we're trying to make sure we have a, a minimum residual in order to protect soil stability and provide certain attributes for wildlife habitat. Uh, but but the idea of having maximum residual dry matter is that you're trying to graze until you ha- are until you're down to uh, some level of of plant residue that that won't be terribly dangerous in terms of fire. Do you attempt to quantify anything like that? You mentioned that this is sort of how you operate in places that have higher fire risk, but is it mostly by uh, instinct that you determine? how to move and when to move. 
it's mostly by instinct and observation. Uh, we do uh, most of these uh, conservation easement protected properties, and which gives us an, actually an opportunity to manipulate these. You know, once you put a permanent conservation easement on a property, you know, you don't have the opportunity to make homes out of it, home sites out of it. And all of a sudden it focuses your, you, you can put a fence in the stock water system in and you can do a lot of things that uh, uh, if you're just going to sell it off to the next speculator down the line and they're going to make a home site out of it, nobody makes permanent long-term improvements. And I just don't, I'm of the opinion that that's an important thing to have a long-term vision because it's really hard on these rangelands to make meaningful changes you you know i used to, when we've grown in other other parts of our business in different times i've been owners and, and farmed walnuts and prunes and pistachios and and you know tree crops and stuff and you can throw a lot of money at those because they have really good returns and you can use magic bullets to but really animal agriculture especially rangeland you need to use animal impact and it's a slow process to change things you don't. You just don't do that, and it doesn't have an instant return on investment in that first year. You, you. I'm. I'm trying to do things that I see really getting the potential out of it over the next twenty and thirty years. And I'm seventy three years old, so you know I might not live to see the, the really see this. Some of these things uh, really, uh, really be productive and really uh, get there. Uh, but it's you know it, the longest journey begins with the first step. You know you gotta. You got to work at it, and uh, but if if the land use is going to change, then you really it really defeats the whole idea of long term planning. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we uh, you know we most of those easements have uh, minimum RDM. Uh, they're you know typically four hundred right. to six hundred uh, pounds, and uh, we've. We've worked with we've worked with with that, but the maximum side I try to, to be. In fact, I would strategically. I it wasn't a very good idea, but my, I have a field that that I saved here at the headquarters ranch on, of the Prather headquarters ranch in Siskiyou County. I have a field that I used to uh, I would dump water into, and it's it's uh, kind of a a, ba- a big basin out there, and we just would grow uh, all kinds of forages, but there was. You know, basically, we'd just make it into a lake in the wintertime, and then we'd dry it during the summer. We wouldn't irrigate it anymore, and then I'd use it in the fall. And we'd put some uh, supplement tubs out there, and the cattle did really well, and, you know, after you weaned the calves and what have you. Well, this year, we had a forest fire and burnt the whole damn thing up. Mm. So I had to start feeding hay in August. Uh, and it, it's been a uh, – I mean, it's been a scramble. Uh, it. We're we're still keeping the cow herd going, and but it is it's been hard to keep the genetics going. The, the easy thing would have been to sell, and when and we're we're struggling to keep keep it to you know keep it together. Yeah, I hear that there's rain headed your way. Yes, but of course it takes more than one rain <laughs> to re- yeah. reset forage supply. It, to reset a couple of years of no rain. Yes. Yeah. How much of the land that you're running on is owned versus leased and permitted? And then how much of the leased or permitted is private versus public? It's, it's, it's all private land we run okay. on, but our, uh, leased, we, the, the, the Prather Ranch Corporation owns a thousand acres. Um, uh, 
my wife and I and a partner own the Hay Ranch, which is uh, 2,000 acres. My daughter owns, and my daughter and son-in-law own another uh, 500 acres uh, of hay ground. And then in, uh, in various partnerships, the winter pastures are owned either by my birth, fa- in some cases, my birth family, in other cases, myself personally, uh, in, in other partnerships are own some of the other properties. So I, I have a, a sundry w- of issues. Then I've got a, a couple of properties that we lease that, uh, are, um, just third parties that I've been grazing their land for, uh, 15 or 20 years. They're just unrelated parties. But in a lot of cases, I personally own a small interest or the majority interest in some cases of, of these. Uh, but I, we own them in different ownerships uh, than the, the ranch corporation, the Prather Ranch Corporation. Right. And, it, and it's tough to keep and it's, it's tough to keep all these things, you know, their they're land trades hands and, right. and uh, it just it's it's hard to keep the operation going and and it's if we had to own all this in fee i'm guessing that we'd be 60 to 80 million dollars to, to own all the ground yeah that we graze on and it, it there was just no way that you could you could service a debt like that and so we've had these uh and i and and i'm i'm able to buy these lease arrangements and and in some cases i'm leasing it from myself uh, but we were we had the opportunity, um, like we own one of the winter pastures is down near the town of Reading, and we uh, we had the opportunity. To, it was scheduled to be a big rural home development and eighteen hundred homes, and we were able to work with the family that had it, and they were uh, uh, friends of ours, and we were able to get a conservation easement put on it, and then they, after a couple of years went by, they wanted us to uh, uh, buy the property since we'd been grazing it and uh, the residual subject to the easement. And turned out that my youngest son uh, was uh, graduating from Cal Poly and we owned a condominium down there and I traded an 800 square foot condominium for a 2200 acre ranch, hmm. uh, which uh, probably the condominium is worth more money than the ranch is today. But anyway, I'm okay with that. Uh, and then we also work with a charitable foundation in uh, the Reading area that owns uh, land around the city of Reading, and uh, and they uh, they uh, they have well, all together about four thousand acres, and it's really this is inside the city limits of Reading in a lot of cases, or right adjacent to the city. And there we're we are trying to demonstrate. Uh, good grazing practices, uh, sustainable agriculture, and uh, and we're also that these people are allowing public access. So we've got walking trails and all kinds of things going on, and public interface. And, and I mean, I've got one place uh, in inside town there where they their 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 headquarters is for the this McConnell Foundation, where if the cows got out, they've got about. Uh, four or five minutes and they're in, they're in the Home Depot parking lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're grazing animals out there and we're trying to do that instead of uh, uh, using uh, fossil fuels and big teams of people out there mowing and, and managing forages. And, and we're, we're trying to demonstrate that we can 
manage fuel loads and things with uh, animal agriculture. Uh, so it's uh, it's a lot of gyrations. It's uh, there's a lot of handholding somehow going on with some of these folks as well. But it's uh, the another property we have there that we that we uh, graze on for these same folks is adjacent to the community college in Reading. And uh, we, we use some student labor and, and stuff to uh, help us manage the animals and, and uh, do some things there as well and, and, and make it available to uh, some educational opportunities. Uh, but again, we're trying to manage in that particular case, we're trying to manage for fuel loads. We're trying to manage um, a lot of different things there. We, we've, we, built a and created a hundred uh, acre irrigated pasture that uh, is, is going to be a greenway and a big fire buffer for the community college. So we can, uh, and it's out of a, a lake system that this year, unfortunately, is nearly dry. So we had to scramble to find alternate forages, but we've planted some, some uh, grasses there that uh, they're a type of fescue that uh, are, can be summer dormant. So if we have to dry up this pasture hmm. uh, because we don't have water in the lakes that supply this uh, pasture and we don't have the rainfall for it, we can actually go back to irrigating it the next year. Hmm. And these, these summer dormant uh, fescues will actually survive summer. the long, hot summers in Reading. So it's been a, we're, we're trying to do, create some demonstration projects too, to kind of get climate resiliency into our system. In these places where you have higher population density or there are some significant liability concerns if cows get out, what do you do for fencing? Uh, we have, we work pretty hard, on, darn hard on the fencing. And we have, um, and by and large, they have neighbors. And the neighbors, you know, when you're up against a residential area, they'll, they'll let you know pretty darn quickly if a cow gets out in their yard. They do. Yeah. No, we... We end up with that, uh, though you have to educate folks, too. We had one who trimmed their oleander plants and threw them over the fence and killed some of our cattle with the oleanders. So, it, you know, it's not a free lunch. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, dogs in a community... And we try to not cab there, for example, in that one where the more intensity, intense housing developments are, mm-hmm. because, you know, Fido comes out and he's he's a loving Labrador retriever until he says a newborn calf and he kills it. Right. And then yeah, by night, the herd and his instinct yeah. kicks in and they just kind of go crazy when they and they and they cat. and these people turn them out, the dogs out and stuff like that. So we we you know, I really don't want to be the guy to have to go shoot Fido. So, um, you know, we try to, we try to put the right class of cattle in there that can, and then, then if it gets too abusive, maybe, maybe, you know, something else might happen, but we've, uh, we by and large try to accommodate the community we're in. It, it's, it, there's a lot of balls in the air in this situation. Yeah. I think the old lingo for that was putting together a ranch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people often, uh, outside of agriculture would often assume that a ranch is a single contiguous piece of property where you have a lot of cows and the vast majority of, um, you know, commercially or financially independent livestock operations are not set up that not way. At all. It's usually yeah. a, 
deuce mixture, as my dad used to say, of all kinds of grazing arrangements. Right. And, and you know, basically, if this was a contiguous ranch, I think I calculated one day, it would be a mile wide and 56 miles long or something like that. You know, and, and, yep. and just the uh, likelihood of uh, uh, assembling something like that would be, uh, assuming you could do it, uh, would, would be many lifetimes to try to, because uh, we just don't have properties of that size, uh, you know, just a helter-skelter in California. Well, Jim, I want to thank you for what you're doing. I, I like to say that uh, people that do this kind of work are the people that make the world go round. And uh, I really do appreciate what you're doing. And if you've got any final words, uh, now is the time to offer them. No, it's it's just a, it's a great lifestyle. Uh, I love the business. I love the people involved in it. And, uh, you know, sometimes I consider it a, uh, you know, being an agriculturalist in production ag is is kind of a disease, you know. But it's it's one I embrace, and it, it's and it's and I I'm assuming it's, it'll be a terminal disease. I'll do it till the till I can till I can anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully that doesn't involve an untimely death. Right. Yeah, I've still got twenty and thirty year plans. I've got to get worked out here, so I've still got that in front of me. That's right. And is your son planning on uh, working with it? He is now. Uh, running a uh, cow-calf operation in, uh, in another, another part of the county. He got, a, he got a real good offer for it, and uh, he's getting some really good experience here. And I don't know how that's all going to turn out, but uh, uh, and then my, uh, my daughter is uh, quite interested in this, and I had a grandson that came up and worked this summer. So, uh, you know, we'll see how this all plays out. Uh, in the meantime, it you know I've, it's a uh, it's a labor of love, and and as long as we can keep doing it, we will. That sounds good. I heard somebody say the other day, everything will work out in the end. So if it's not working out yet, it means it's not the end. There you go. That's that's a good. Way, that I I'll, I'll repeat that to my wife. She, she asked <laughs> me about this once in a while. What do we? I remember my mother one time asked me this. Uh, she says, what's your exit strategy from all this, son? And I said, well, mom, uh, I think I'm just going to be going forward hard as I can and, and fall face forward sometime. That's right. <laughs> well, Jim, thanks for your time. You have a decent website, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Oh, perfect. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.